Many of you know, uh, I just returned home from a trip where I was able to be in the United Kingdom in England for a few weeks doing research uh, for school for a degree that I'm working on. We were able to see some amazing sights and visit some amazing places. And the Lord really used our time there and, and taught me many things and grew me closer to Himself. One of the places we were able to visit is a place called Colchester. And that may, name may mean nothing to, to most of you. It's a small town in England, uh, pretty obscure. But it's an important town because it is the home place and the place where uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was raised. Many of you, that name may sound familiar. For those of you, that, that name means nothing. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is, has been called one of the greatest preachers to have ever lived. In the 19th century, he would have been sort of their Billy Graham, if that makes sense. God used him in a mighty way uh, to proclaim the truth of God. He grew up in Colchester, and as we were there, we were able to visit uh, the actual church building that he was converted in. And as we were sitting there and hearing his story, the story of his conversion, I'm praying about this day, because I knew the Lord had uh, allowed me to, to the opportunity to preach this Sunday, and I'm praying, Lord, would you lead me to a text, lead me to where you would have me be in your word as we gather as the body of Christ to preach, to think through the scriptures. And Spurgeon's story, his conversion story, uh, spoke to me, and in particular the text that was important in his life, the Lord led me through that, I think, to the text that we'll walk through this morning. You see, Spurgeon was uh, brought up, he, he was brought up in a congregational church, and so he was baptized as an infant. Some of you may have been. And he begins to wrestle with, though, even though he had been brought up in church, this idea of salvation, and he, he had doubts, and so he began to read his Bible and pray daily, seeking some type of affirmation or some type of confirmation that he had been born again. And he couldn't find that. He had this deep sense, this deep need for deliverance. Well, one Sunday morning in 1850, it's January, he, wake, he wakes up and he's going to walk to church. He's a 15-year-old boy and a snowstorm blows up and it's a huge blizzard. And so to get out of the, the weather, he darts down this little side street, artillery street, where he finds this primitive Methodist chapel, small little church. And to get in out of the weather, he goes indoors and Lo and behold, they're about to start their service. And it just so happens that that day the preacher for that church was also snowed in. He couldn't make it to the service that day. And so a lay member goes behind the pulpit, opens his Bible to Isaiah 45, 22. And he reads these words. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I alone am God and there is none other. Writing on that verse and on this occasion in his autobiography, Spurgeon says this. I'm going to read it to you from his words because they're really good. Spurgeon says, He, that being the lay preacher that day, had, much, had nothing much to say. Thank God, for that compelled him to keep repeating his text. And there was nothing much else needed, by me at least. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting in the gallery and he said, That young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, Look! Look, young man, look now. And then I had a vision, not with my own eyes, but with my heart. And I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe, and I did believe in that moment. And as the snow fell on my road home from that little house of prayer, I thought that every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon that I had found, for I was as white as snow through the grace of God. 
as I've, as I've been praying and studying and getting ready for this day, that's been my heart and my prayer for us as the people of God this morning meeting, is that we would see, oh, what a Savior our Christ is. And that in seeing that, our hearts would be transformed and drawn to love Him more. And if that could truly happen, if we could see Christ this morning, it would be the greatest thing that could happen for any one of us. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open. If you don't, open them back up because we're going to be walking through the text this, this morning together. As you're turning, Hebrews is written by an unknown author. We don't, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, it doesn't tell us. Through history, it's been uh, suggested that it could have been Peter or Paul or Apollos or even Luke. But the point is we, we don't know with any certainty. It was written likely to a, a Christian church that had a Jewish background, Jewish background believers. The reason we think that is that there's no mention of, of Gentiles in the book. And there are several themes in the book of, of, of Hebrews, but the overarching, the, the primary theme, and I hope what we see this morning in the text, is that Jesus, the Son of God, is superior and supreme over all things, over every person and everything that exists. Jesus is over it. And so hopefully you have your Bibles open. Look at it, verse 1 with me this morning. The text says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. Can we just stop for one moment and thank God that He is a speaking God that speaks to us? There's a, there's a phrase used in our culture quite often, sadly, um, often in the Bible Belt where a lot of us grew up, that I have found God, or He or she found religion, or He or she found Jesus. Hear me carefully this morning, church family. We do not find God. If you know Christ, if you have, have a relationship with Him this morning, it is because God so pleased in His sovereignty to reveal Christ to you by His Word and through the power of His Holy Spirit. It's the only hope we have for knowing Christ, for finding salvation. Our senses, as amazing as they are, the ability to hear and see and touch, taste and smell, they are incapable of revealing anything to us outside of the natural world. For us to know anything about God, it must be because He has spoken it to us. He's revealed it to us. So when we read in verse 1 and we get to these two small words, God spoke, it should cause us to rejoice that He's not left us ignorant of Himself or alone, but He has revealed Himself to us. Three things I think happen when God speaks. Number one, when God speaks, revelation happens. When God speaks, revelation happens. And there's some of you sitting here that, that may hear that and think, well, what about general revelation? What about this idea that we should be able to look around us in creation and certain things should tell us that, that a God exists, that there is a God? Absolutely. Nature. What about nature? Can't we look at the sun and moon and stars and say there must be a God? When we see the beauty of creation, shouldn't it point us to its creator? Absolutely. But creation and nature can't point you to the, the, the God-man, Jesus Christ, that came and lived the perfect life on this world, perfectly fulfilling the law. No, only God's revelation can do that. What about our conscience? What about morality? The fact that it seems that within, the, within each human, uh, there is this, this conscience that suggests to us that there's a, a moral law giver that has instilled within each one of us that general Conscience and morality. Absolutely, it should, it should show us that and tell us that. 
But your conscience and morality can't tell you about Jesus Christ who ascended Golgotha's hill and was nailed to a cross to atone for your sins and mine. No, only the revelation of God can do that. What about science? Doesn't science tell us that there's a God? The more we learn about creation, doesn't doesn't that speak to the fact that there has to be a God? Newton's first law says that something at rest stays in rest unless it is acted upon by an object outside of itself. Shouldn't that tell us that there's a, a primary or a first mover, that God created all of this? Absolutely it does. Praise the Lord that, that even science testifies to the fact that there's a God. But all of the science in the world can't tell you about an empty tomb. And the significance of that empty tomb, not just that it's an empty tomb, but that that empty tomb means that Jesus is alive and his resurrection seals our resurrection, that we will also be alive in him. No science can't tell you that. Only the revelation of God can. So when God speaks, revelation happens. Second, when God speaks, communication happens. Speech doesn't always mean communication. Any of you ever played the game as a kid? Telephone. The telephone game. The way it works, in case you haven't played that, one person has a sentence or a thought, and they pass it to their neighbor, and the neighbor hears it, and they process it, and they tell that same sentence to their neighbor. And it goes down the line, so forth and so on, until you get to the last person. And then it's usually funny when they tell what they heard, because it's often very different from what it started out as. That game in itself tells us that speech doesn't always equal communication. A message can be miscommunicated or murmured or slurred or garbled and it's completely missed by the person trying to receive it. Communication can be missed on the given end or the received end. There's this story about Franklin Roosevelt when he was president. Franklin Roosevelt was a character. He liked to cut up. And as as these things go, people like to meet the president. And so he would often have these meetings where he would have lines of people come through wanting to shake his hand and meet the president. And so being the kind of guy he was, Roosevelt kind of had this idea that I don't really think people are listening to me when they come by anyways. They're just wanting to shake my hand and pat me on the back and tell me what a great job I'm doing. So I'm going to have a little fun. And he has this line of people come through one evening and he decides that he's going to lean over and shake their hand. And when he shakes their hand, he whispers into their ear, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And as most of them did, they shook his hand and patted him on the back. Congratulations, President. We're so proud of you. Thank you for leading our country. Next person will come along. I murdered my grandmother this morning. Thank you, President. You're such a great president. Thank you for leading our country so well. Congratulations. We're so honored to have you lead our country. And so forth and so on. So it's it's affirming what he's already thinking. Well, he gets to this uh, diplomat from Bolivia. And as he shakes his hand, he leans in and tells him, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And the diplomat from Bolivia looks up and says, well, she probably had it coming. And at that moment, he realized, finally, somebody is listening and receiving the message that I'm giving them. You see, speech doesn't always mean communication, but when our God speaks, communication happens. We should be thankful this morning. We should rejoice in the fact that our God doesn't garble or murmur or slur his speech. But when he communicates, it's always fruitful. Number three, when God speaks, salvation happens. Hear me clearly, folks, this morning. There is no hope of salvation, no hope of eternal life apart from the communicated and revealed Son of God. If you are saved this morning, it is because God has spoken to you and revealed His Son to you. Let's get back to the, to, to the text. These, these, these verses, these first three, four verses are meant to be one single sentence. In the original Greek, they are, are one sentence, a mega sentence, and 
Uh, let's read through it. I know you've heard it once this morning, but let's read through it again. I promise I won't stop us this time because I got excited about God speaking, but we should be excited about God speaking. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Note this morning in verse 1 the contrast and continuity that you see even in this first verse. The continuity is that there is one God. One God speaking then, one God speaking now. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He spoke then and He speaks now. But look at the contrast because I think it's the contrast that pushes us to see the emphasis in this text. Long ago, in these last days. To our fathers and to us. By the prophets and by His Son. The point here for us this morning is that God really did speak in the past. He spoke to those Jewish patriarchs. He spoke to the prophets and revealed uh, truth to them. And it was good and it was true. You see in the text that it says it many times. If you look back and think back through the Old Testament, God used everything from donkeys to dreams to angels to prophets to priests to pagans to communicate truth to His people. And it was true and it was good. It also says that many way, in many ways... Think about your Old Testament, your Bible. It is full of, of different genres of literature. He spoke through poetry, through law. He spoke in doctrine. He spoke ethical things. He spoke narratives. He spoke warnings and rebukes and encouragement. And all of it is God speaking. Same God speaking truth to them. But I love the second half of this verse. But now. But now, in these last days, and when you hear that, don't necessarily think end times, eschatology, end of the world. It's more of a theological statement than a chronological statement. But in these last days, here's the, the significance of that first verse. He has spoken by his son. The writer here is emphasizing the finality of the message through the son. Has spoken in the Greek here causes us to read it with finality and utmost significance when you read it here. Why is that important? How does that practically help us as we're here this morning thinking through how we do life and live in the kingdom? You may have a Mormon or a Muslim friend that would come to you and say, well, I have a newer word or we have been given a, a different word or a new uh, revelation from God. Take them to Hebrews 1 and open the word with them and lovingly show them that it is absolutely unnecessary because the Son has already spoken. The remainder of this section and Hebrews as a whole is meant to push us to see the superiority of the Son and the ultimate, ultimate superiority of His message. Think about your whole Bible. The Old Testament is pointing to the story of this one, the Son. The Gospels tell the story of the Son. The Epistles comment upon the story of the Son. Revelation shows His culmination, the culmination of His kingdom and the consummation. From beginning to end, your Bible is about this one, the Christ. In former times, no prophet had the full message of Jesus Christ. They had fragments and pieces, and it was true and it was good. But this one, the Son, Jesus brought God's full and final revelation to us. 
and it is of utmost importance. God has not sent another prophet to proclaim the word. He has sent us his very son who is the word. So the remainder of this text this morning that we're going to walk through, again, I've called it a mega sentence. We're going to see seven proclamations about Christ that point us to the fact that he and his message are superior. Number one and number two, the first two, deal with the son's relationship to creation. Look with me in verse two. He that is the son is the heir of all things. This should remind us and point us back to Psalm two, verse eight. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Colossians 1, 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. So look around, friend, this morning. Everything you see with your physical eyes, everything that you can see and everything that you can't see that's spiritual, that's going on around us all the time, All things that exist, exist for Jesus Christ. Which is incredible when you think of how he's revealed in the Gospels. Think about what's communicated to us about this one that came and was born in a feed stall. Not only that, he became poor for our sakes. As a man, Luke 9 tells us that he had nowhere to even lay his head. He was homeless. And that at his death, even his own clothes, his possessions were taken from him and stolen and divided up. And then he was buried in another man's tomb because he didn't have one. This is the son that we read about in the Gospels. But friends, it's not the end of the story. This one, the son, is coming again. He will return again. And I can promise you, friends, that he's not coming as a homeless guy with no clothes and no tomb. But he's coming alive. And he will eternally and completely inherit all things. Here's the wonder of all wonders. Is that Romans 8, 16 and 17. Tells us that those of us who have trusted in him. Become fellow heirs with Christ. That all that he inherits We inherit in Him. We are co-heirs. We will jointly possess all that He possesses. What an incredible thought. Practically for us this morning. If you're here this morning and finances are about to kill you and you don't know how you're going to meet your bills this month and you're facing eviction from your home because you can't meet your bills, know this this morning. That your, your identity doesn't lie in your financial status or your social status on this earth, that if you are in Christ, all that he has is yours in him. That's incredibly encouraging for us. I think we live in a a world, in a country that has so much material possession that we hear that and, okay, that's great. But for the poorest of poor that have nothing to their name, they are kings because everything that Christ has will be theirs. Number two, also in verse two, not only will he be the heir of all things, but he is also God's agent of creation. John 1, 3 says that all things were made through him and without him, not anything was made that was made. This speaks to the son's divinity. One of the greatest proofs of Jesus's divinity is his ability to create. That belongs to God and God alone. Only God can create out of nothing. And we see here in the text that Jesus is doing that very thing. You would read this verse in the Greek and expect to find the word cosmos for world. It's not the word that's used here. Instead, the writer uses the word ionos, which means the ages. 
Why is that important? Why does that matter for us this morning? And it demonstrates to us that Jesus was not only responsible for creating the physical world and everything that we see, but in fact, he was responsible for creating time and space and energy and matter. So not only did Jesus create everything, but he created everything that was necessary for that thing to function. Everything. Jesus created the whole world and everything in it. Think about this for a moment. In a normal lifetime, in a normal lifetime, human lifetime, your heart will beat 800 million times. That's a huge number. I don't know about Bun, but in Gina, Louisiana, we didn't count that high. We, they didn't have enough fingers. 800 million times. To put that in perspective, your heart beating 800 million times would be enough blood pumping through your body to fill tanker trucks lining from Boston to New York City. 200 miles of 18-wheeler tanker trucks. That's an incredible amount of heart beating and blood pumping. But not only that, there's a section of your brainstem that's a half inch by half inch by half inch cube. And that section of your brainstem contains enough brain cells for a lifetime of memory. Not only that, your ear has the unique ability to take sound waves from the air and through liquid transfer that wave by nerves to your brain where your brain processes and encodes that message so that in an instant you can hear sound. What an incredible thought. Where did all that come from? Friends, it's not by accident or chance that humans are here. We didn't just evolve out of some primordial slime. Jesus Christ and his mind and in his creative processes created every bit of that and so much more that we take for granted every day. He created all things. So back to number one, he's heir of all things because he's created all things. The next two, number three and number four, deal with the son's relationship to the father. We've seen his relationship to creation. Verse 3 says that he, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. This places emphasis on the Son as the one through whom which we see the Father. He is truly God from God and light from very light. Everything that God is in his essence, in its substance, the Son also is. What do I mean by that? The Father. We cannot see the Father with our physical eyes. But when we read about him in the Word, we find that the Father is holy. You look across and the Son is also holy. The Father, he, you look at the, the Word and you see that He has all wisdom and power and strength. You look at the Son, it's there too. All wisdom, all power, all strength. Everything that the Father is in His essence and substance, the Son also is. They are one. Not of like essence or like substance, but of one essence and substance. The word radiance is used here. That's significant. It has meaning for us. When you read that word, it should make a picture go into your head. And that picture is, uh, as Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, he is transmitting the brilliance, the splendor, the majesty of God the Father. That should point us back to the transfiguration, which we just studied about here not long ago. On the mountain, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus. And Elijah and Moses are there on the mountain with them as well. And when we hear that as, as contemporary believers, we kind of can pass through that and, and it doesn't stop us in our tracks like it would have them. Moses and Elijah, that was the biggest deal in the world for them to have appeared on this mountain for these guys. That was huge. A.W. Pink, though, I love what he says. He says in that moment, though, when they were there with Elijah and Moses, and that was amazing and the biggest thing they could think of, 
When Jesus, for a moment, pulled back the veil and allowed them to see the splendor and majesty of the glory of God, the brilliance of God, Moses and Elijah in that moment became like chopped liver. All of a sudden, that didn't matter at all. The only thing that mattered was the sun who was radiating the glory of God. A.W. Pink didn't say chopped liver. That was Matt James' interpretation. But what a thought that, that when we see King Jesus... And his glory, radiating the glory of the Father, nothing else matters. In that moment, he alone is what matters. He's the radiance of God's glory. Number four, same verse, look down with me. He is the exact representation of his nature. The idea here is that of a wax seal. So in these days, the king would want to send a message, a letter, if you will. What they would do is take that letter and drip wax onto it and the king would have a ring that would have an imprint on it. He would take that ring and mash it down into the hot wax so that whatever was in the ring, the imprint in the ring, was also now in the wax. And whatever the wax showed was there because it was in the ring. So that when the recipient of the letter saw it, they knew without a doubt this is authoritative. It's from the king himself. And I better pay attention. He, the son, is the exact representation of the father. Whatever we see in the Son is there because it's also in the Father. If you want to see the Father, look at His Son. Colossians 1.15 says He is the image of the invisible God. What do three and four, uh, why are they different? How are they different? Why does that matter? Number three, remember, was that He is the radiance of God's glory. Number four is that He is the representation of God's nature. How are those things different and why does that matter? Well, someone may would come to you and say that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible and shouldn't be used. shouldn't be a doctrine that we hold to because you can't find it in Scripture. Take them to Hebrews 1 and lovingly marvel at the beauty of our triune God. These two clauses together articulate the doctrine And the mystery of the the Trinity and the unique relationship that exists between Father and Son. He is, the Son is God. They share one essence, one substance, but yet He is the representation of God. He is His own distinct person and has His own personhood. They are one, but they're also three in one. It's beautiful that the, the writer of Hebrews would articulate it in this way because human analogies fall short. The next two, five and six. Continue in the text with me. We've seen the Son's relationship to creation. We've seen His relationship to the Father. The next two deal with His activity. Number five, we'll find in verse three, it says this, that He, that is the Son, upholds all things by His word of power. So not only did Christ create all things, not only will He inherit all things, but He upholds all things. Think about these things with me for a moment. The earth's rotation slowed only just a little or only momentarily. It would cause instant destruction for life on earth. If the sun, which is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, if the earth moved any closer to the sun, we would burn up in an instant. If it drifted further away from the sun, even just a little, we would freeze to death. The world, the earth is tilted at 23 degrees. If that varied or changed in any way, uh, vapors from the ocean would drift north and south and create massive continents of ice that would cause us to go into an ice age destroying life on earth. 
The moon, if it were not the exact distance that it is from Earth, it would disrupt the tidal waves system and the the ocean's waves would crush into the coasts of the Earth twice a day, flooding the, the continents. Which wouldn't really matter that it happened twice a day because the first time would be enough to annihilate us. Not only that, if the ocean floors, picture with me, if you will, the ocean floors, if they were all simultaneously only two or three feet higher, the ratio between carbon dioxide and oxygen in the earth's air would be thrown off, and because of that ratio being thrown off, plant and animal life would cease to exist. Finally, the atmosphere that surrounds the earth, that's the protective shield around our planet, if its density changed even slightly, the meteorites that are constantly hitting that atmosphere and and, and, and being abolished, being blown up by this protective shield, all of a sudden those meteorites would constantly threaten the destruction of our planet. When you read all that or hear all that, it sounds like a sci-fi movie, something you would see on TV, some kind of fiction How does the universe stay in this kind of fantastic balance? It is by the Son of God. Who not only monitors every movement of this planet and universe, but sustains and upholds every movement of this planet and universe. This is the power of our great God and King. And you see what the writer's doing here. How does he, how does he do this? How does the Son do this? By the power of His Word. The writer of Hebrews is pointing us back again to the power and the importance of speech and communication. God's speaking. Not only is God's speaking necessary for our spiritual life and for rebirth, God's speech is necessary. His word is necessary for sustaining our physical life. So a bit of practical application. If he can do all of that. He can sustain everything we see in the systems that must be in place for our planet to function properly. If he can do all of that by the mere power of his word, why are you worried about your finances? Why are you worried about problems in your home or in your relationships? Why are you worried about this upcoming political season that seems to have everyone in a frenzy and at each other's throats? Certainly, hear me closely, certainly we should seek to glorify God in each of those spheres, in each of those places in our lives. We should be concerned about all of those things and we should be actively trying to honor Him in our interaction in all those spheres. But when we move from concern and working to His glory to worry and anxiety about those things, we're demonstrating that we're not trusting in the One who maintains and sustains all of them by the power of His Word. So we trust Him this morning. When your life is given to Jesus, He sustains it, holds it, protects it until that day when He will deliver it to His Father. He sustains all things. He upholds all things by the power of His Word. Number six. Also find it in verse three. Some heavy verses. Packed full of great truth. Number three. Or verse three. He made purification for sins. So we've already seen in the text this morning, we've already, we've already seen that Christ created all things. We've seen that he's the heir of all things and that he upholds all things. And yet there is still a problem. We have sin in this world. Sin has entered into this perfect place that he created and that he sustains and will one day inherit. And the question remains, who would do something like that? Who would introduce sin into this perfect place that he's created, sustaining, and will inherit? 
You look at the sun, moon, and stars and you call out sun, moon, and stars. Did, did you do that? Did you introduce sin into this earth? Silence. Probably because sun, moon, and stars don't speak, but they cry out, we're not the guilty party. Creeping things and crawling birds and flying, uh, f- flying birds and crawling things. Are you responsible for this sin in the earth? And nothing. Then, then who? Who would introduce sin and corruption into this world that the sun is created and is, is sustaining by His Word? We did. Every one of us in this room, we've sinned. We've rebelled. Not just once or twice, but every day. We choose to rebel against this One who's created all things. The audacity. We are all guilty. But the beauty in this text is that the grammar shifts here. The grammar in the Greek shifts. You might not see it in your, in your English translations, but if you could read it in the Greek, it would sound a lot like Yoda from Star Wars speaks. Because he, he's doing something important here with the language and he's wanting to place emphasis. So what he says is that he, that's the son, he, him, and himself alone, purification for sins made. He's emphasizing that the work of the Son, the the unique priestly office of the Son, is completed finally and fully once and for all. He's contrasting that with what happens in the Old Testament when priests would come daily and offer sacrifices for sins. Daily because they would have to sacrifice for themselves and for the sins of the people. Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 9 comment further upon this. I'm going to read uh, to you from Hebrews 7. 27 and then 9, 12, because I think the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. Hebrews 7 says this. He, that's Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 9 He entered in once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and of bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He has appeared once For all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's remarkable the writer of Hebrews goes here to the cross for a Jewish audience which would have been uh, repulsive or a stumbling block. But the writer goes here in the midst of these seven excellencies of Christ because he realizes it is the only hope of salvation. That this one, the son, would atone for and purify us of our sins. That message is equally uh, repulsive for our generation. The thought that someone else would would have to be beaten and bloody for for me, that is the only hope we have of salvation. He's made purification for our sins. The final one, final one deals with his status. So we've seen his relationship to creation. We've seen his relationship uh, to the Father. We've seen his actions, his activity, And now we'll see, uh, finally, his status. Number seven. Find it in verse three. He, that's Jesus, the Son, is God's great King. Notice what the Son does after making purification for sin. He sits down. 
This is a sign of, of finality, drastically different from the procedure that the priest would have had to went through in the Old Testament. It's done on purpose. You see, there were no seats in the tabernacle or temple. They would have had no place. It would actually have been inappropriate for a priest to have sit down because his work was never completed. His work was sacrifice daily, sacrifice daily, sacrifice daily because the people kept sinning and there needed to be continual sacrifices on behalf of the people and on behalf of himself for the purification of that sin. But when the son offers himself, you remember what he said on the cross. Those three powerful words that are resounding here in the text even though they're not said literally, those three words are still resounding. It is finished. And he sits down. He sits down because the the work of the king, of our king, when he offered himself for the purification of our sins, being a perfect, holy, spotless, blameless sacrifice, when he offered himself, it was completed once and for all. You see, God the Father didn't just send another earthly priest that would atone for sacrifice for sins no he sent his own son who would not only offer a sacrifice to God but who was the sacrifice to God this is the beauty of the gospel that the king the one we worship the one who created all things sustains all things will inherit all things died on a tree for you and for I And because of that, the work is completed. Death, hell, and the grave have met their ultimate death in the Son's death. And then he sat down because the work was completed. Notice where he sits. That's important as well. He sits at the right hand of the Father. This demonstrates his authority. Demonstrates his preeminence. His ability to rule and reign as king forever. It also is a place of honor. To sit at the right hand was a place of honor. So when King Jesus sits here, we should know he is to be honored and cherished and loved above all things. There's also a purpose, though, in his sitting. If you go to Romans chapter 8, you'll see this. That this one, the king, who created all things, will inherit all things, and sustains all things, is interceding for you and I right now at the right hand of the Father. Praying on behalf of us. Praying for us. So what does that mean for us this morning? It means if you are this morning here and you're so desperate and despondent and you you have no no excitement in your life because of whatever tragedy you've just been through and the depression is overwhelming you to the point that you don't even know how to pray to God, you can have confidence. You can rest assured that your great King is praying on your behalf. When we don't even know the words to utter, He's uttering them for us. As He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He didn't just offer us. The Father didn't just offer another earthly king whose end would ultimately come, whose reign would ultimately end. He offered us His Son who is king forever and whose rule will never end. We can rejoice in that this morning. That's great news. So how do we respond to a text like this? I realize in this type of a text, in this type of a sermon, uh, I haven't given you a lot of uh, application. Do this, do this. But I don't want to leave without us doing that. And so here's a couple things for us to think through. How do we respond? How do we live in light of a text like this when uh, the heart has been uh, to see the Son of God? How do we see Jesus and live differently? How do we respond once we've seen this one, the Son? A couple things. Number one, I think first and foremost, we, like a young Charles Spurgeon at 15 years old, need to realize that our greatest need in the entire world is to see the Son. 
to see what a Savior Christ is, as Spurgeon said. There are undoubtedly two people, two groups of people in this room. There are those of you who know Christ. You have a relationship with Him. You've surrendered your life to Him. The decisions you make are through His Lordship. You've yielded every area of your life to Him. The call, the invitation to you would be the exact same this morning. That you need to look to Christ. You may say, well, I'm walking closer with Christ right now. I'm closer to Christ than I feel I've ever been. Friends, we live in a fallen world, and the reality is, even if you're walking with Christ now and you feel His presence daily, tragedy is just around the corner. It's the reality of living in a fallen world. And you don't know whether it'll be next week or next month or next year. Something's going to come into your life, and you are going to drastically need to cling to the Savior for everything you've got. Look to Christ this morning. Walk in those habits of grace where you're clinging to Christ, seeking Him daily, desiring to see Him every day. Undoubtedly, there are those in this room, though, that are in the second group of people, those that have never surrendered to Christ. You don't know Christ. He's not the Lord of your life, the boss of your life. You've never confessed your sins to Him. The call is the same. Look to Christ this morning. Acknowledge that you are uh, sinful and that you've rebelled. And that there is no hope for salvation apart from His work. There's nothing you could do to earn it. There's nothing you could do to win His affection and love. Confess your sins to Him and call upon Him to save you and cling to Christ. What's the second thing? I think there's another point of application here. I think there's many, but at least two we'll notice. Second, when you see the Son, worship Him. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, people encounter God and their only response, their only appropriate response is to fall on their knees and worship Him. That's what happens when you see the Son. When the, when the Father speaks to you and reveals Christ to you, the appropriate response is worship. And I'm not talking just about singing songs or hymns. I'm talking about your life. Last week you heard that he's worth persecution and even dying for. He's also worth living for. So this morning I'm challenging you to worship him tomorrow. When you get to work and you got a stack of papers on your desk and you just don't feel like doing it. Do it as unto the Lord as your reasonable act of worship. When you are faced with that person tomorrow that just rubs you wrong and you can't stand them. Love them with the love of Christ because you've seen Jesus today. Worship Him in the way you live. 